Blog Talk Radio. Other 
uh, news that uh, I noticed was on the front page of the L.A. Times today, I don't know about the Boston, was that um, um, an illegal settlement in um, the West Bank is being evacuated today peacefully. And you know, Patrick, that has a lot to do with um, this new Israeli Supreme Court. Yes. That is in the process, I think, quite tre- treacherously, in my opinion, of declaring um, Jewish villages and towns in, in Judea and Samaria as illegal and then having them stripped of their Jews. Now, that's a, my opinion. That's my editorial on it. But it, it, it's a, this re-empowerment of, of this Israeli Supreme Court in their new building in Jerusalem, a very strange building, by the way, <laughs> one that could be studied. It has all this occultic uh, imagery. And um, it's a, just a very odd situation. It's, a, you know, where you have, I mean, in a sense, it's, it's a judiciary that's almost taking on dictatorial powers. I mean, I believe in a balance of power. Maybe we could uh, analogize it to the U.S. Supreme Court. I don't know. I don't think so. Well, before but, we I do mean, that, it's, uh, we need to take a break and welcome our radio listeners in. But we'll pick that sure. up as soon as we get back. I'm Patrick O'Heffernan, and I want to welcome our radio listeners on 1490 WWPR in Tampa Bay, and that will be the home of the Republican National Convention, and KSKQFM in Ashland, Oregon, home of the best Shakespeare festival in the country, at least in my opinion. I'm co-hosting today's edition of Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick, with Chuck Morris. He's in Boston, Massachusetts, and we'd love to have you be part of the show. You can join us by email at fairnessradio at gmail.com. You can also call us, 424-675-6806. And don't forget to check out our website, fairnessradio.com, after the show, obviously not during the show, if you're listening online. So, And uh, keep in mind that uh, this segment is brought to you by Barton Publishing, bartonpublishing.com, your source of information to manage your health, and your body naturally without using expensive or toxic drugs. And if you use the word fairness in the coupon code, you get an immediate, right there on the screen in front of your very eyes, a 50% discount. Well, we were talking uh, just before uh, we we, uh, went off the air for a break there, we were talking about the evacuation of Jewish uh, uh, settlers uh, from lands in the West Bank that the, the the uh, Israeli Supreme Court has, has declared uh, Palestinian land that was illegally occupied. And uh, Chuck was about to tell us a little bit about the new Supreme Court. So uh, go ahead, Chuck. What, what about this new Supreme Court in, um, in Israel? Well, Patrick, I mean, this is, you know, when we talk in this country about activist decisions, those are minor compared to this. I mean, this is a, an unelected judiciary getting involved in a blatantly political question, and essentially what they've done if you take a look at this, is they've declared Zionism as illegal. Um, you know, it's a political question where Jews live. The Jews, by the way, in this village didn't take any land away from anybody. It's a, uh, it's a, it's a barren hilltop that was just commonly owned land. It was not owned by anyone. 
And for them to come in and embane themselves into a political question, which is really something that's the policy of Israel's elected government, and tell people that they can't live there because they're Jewish, it's a very troubling phenomena, in my opinion. It's it's uh, something that could have implications in, in, in other nations with regard to authoritarian, unelected power dictating matters that really are more appropriate to an elected government. Well, now, something I, I don't understand here. Um, you say that the land is owned in common. Uh, in common by whom? By Jews and Palestinians? By uh, nobody. It, it well, doesn't have a title. It's not titled property, Patrick. The it's like they said it was. Well, they're wrong. There's no one had no because I know about this. I've, well, I've read how about do it, you know, Patrick. I, mean, I you know because there was no title. There was land in there was land in California that has no title. I mean, there are there are just territories there that are yes, there is. Like for example, the Mojave Desert. There are pieces uh, of land there that aren't owned by a private person. No, they're, they're owned by the government. Well, they're 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 not. It's it's a different sort of ownership. I mean, it's not. Uh, you know, they, there's not a title. No one has filed a title in a in a county that says I own this piece of property. It's just generally owned or at least managed by the state. It's not. It's not actually physically owned by any person. And that's the situation we're talking about here. You, if you want to say it's owned by the government, well, fine. Then it should be up to the government in terms of how it disposes of it, not the Supreme Court. The well, government. Well, let's, let's, let's distinguish here between California and Israel. Um, sure. On the Mojave Desert, uh, I, I, I know for a fact, because I worked on this with the, when I was at the governor's office, that every square inch of the Mojave Desert does have a title. Most of it belongs to either the Mojave Desert Land Trust or the Department of Interior or private or private owners. There is no part of the Mojave Desert that doesn't have legally registered okay. ownership or federal title. Now I don't know what's going on in, in Israel. I have to defer to you on that one. All right. Well if it's owned by the Department of the Interior then it's you know, it's and, and the word owned is not exactly the same context as a privately owned parcel. I mean in other words the Department of the Interior maintains overall responsibility for it and they have the option of possibly selling it to private developers or citizens or not. No, well, what, not really. Whatever agree, what, well, no, yeah, they do. And whatever agreement they have, the point is that it's, no, it's they don't. owned. <laughs> I've been through well, that, believe me. All right. Well, the point, it's, the point that I'm making here in the broad sense is that it's either owned in the broad meaning of the word by the federal government or by the state yeah. or by, as you say, a land trust, which is essentially a, a nonprofit a group of people who donated money so that the land could be preserved for nature. I assume they have those in Massachusetts too. Yeah, right. Or it's owned by or it's owned by communities. It's owned by cities and towns, or it's owned by private individuals right. or companies. Yeah. And in the case of Israel, this is not privately owned land. It's owned by technically, however that comes about, by the government of Israel. And the government of Israel is being told by a Supreme Court how to handle their land. Now, if the government of Israel wants to tell Jews that they can't live on that land, I may not like that, and I don't like it, but I have to respect the fact that this is Israel's elected government, and that's their policy. It's an entirely different matter when you have an unelected body of uh, judges invading into an area where they had never invaded before, which is not part of their purview, by telling Jews as individuals that they cannot live on government land. It's a matter between those Jews who are living there and the government, not the Supreme Court. 
So, so you know for a fact that the land in question was not owned by Palestinians, but rather was owned by the Israeli government? Yes, I do. It was not owned. And if it were owned by individual Palestinians, they sold it to, Israel, to these settlers. That's also you, going on. You know that for a fact? In the case of this community, yes. It is not owned by any individual Palestinians. It was vacant, barren hilltop that was owned by the government, yes. Well, just because land is vacant and barren doesn't mean it can't be owned by someone. Well, it, was, it, so ha it so happens that it was, and that okay. is also the case with all of these settlements. They are not stealing private land owned by anybody, Jew or, or Arab. They are either buying the land, in many cases from Palestinian landowners who are absentee and who sell it to them, or they're settling on government land. They're not settling on any land that is privately owned. Yes, okay. I know that is an absolute fact. Okay, all right. Well, I'll, I'll take your word for it because I don't know, and you do, so I'll take your word mm -hmm. for it. So in this case, then the Supreme Court said that it was uh, improper for the Israeli government that owns the land to make it available for Israeli settlements. That's right. Okay. And that is an unprecedented seizure of power by this uh, Supreme Court. It's, it's something that they have no purview over, to tell the Israeli government where Jews can and cannot live. And it, viola and it violates Zionism, really. What they're saying is that you know, the, the Zionist enterprise, which is the right of the Jewish people to live in a sovereign state, is invalid. It is a very troubling phenomenon. Well, what about the right of the Palestinians to live in a sovereign state? They have, a, they have the right to live in a sovereign state. It's called Jordan. They don't have a right to live in Israel? They have a right to live in Israel, but you said a sovereign state. Well, is they, it, have a, Israel, they have achieved sovereignty in Jordan. And by the way, our guest the other day, the, the general's son, yeah. he actually was inaccurate in his contention that there were, 10 mil, there were 5 million Arabs in, in Israel. It's actually more like 100 million Arabs. If you look at the entire, no, in the entire Arab empire from oh, okay. <laughs> Morocco to Iraq, and it's only been in the past hundred years that five million Arabs have crowded into Palestine. Okay. That's, right. I should have said that, but in the heat of that very rather tempestuous conversation, I didn't get to it. Okay, well, we're going to take a break now, and when we come back, we're going to change topics, and uh, we're going to talk about the United States Supreme Court. So stay with us. You're listening to Fairness Radio. Chuck and Patrick on the Block Talk Radio Network, the Cyber Station USA Network, and on our radio station affiliates. Don't go away. We'll be right back.
We are back. You're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick on the Block Talk Radio Network, the Cyber Station USA Network, and on our radio affiliates. And a special shout-out to our radio audience in Tampa Bay, preparing for the Republican National Convention. It's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, I haven't been to Republican Convention. I have been to several Democratic conventions, but I can tell you you're going to have a great time. Uh, don't forget, you can be part of this show, 424-675-6806. You can also email us at fairnessradio at, at gmail.com. That's 424-675-6806 and fairnessradio at gmail.com. And, and this segment is brought to you by Barton Publishing, bartonpublishing.com, your source of information to manage your body and your health naturally without using toxic drugs or expensive uh, pharmaceuticals, and don't forget to put fairness in the coupon code, gives you a 50% discount. Well, while much of the nation has been focused on the Supreme Court decisions on immigration, live prison, life, uh, life prison terms for children, and the Affordable Care Act, another trend has developed. The Supreme Court seems unusually business-friendly. Our next guest, Neil, Neil Ware, published a study on the Supreme Court and the United States Chamber of Commerce that highlighted this trend. Neil is the litigation advisor and Supreme Court fellow at the Constitutional Accountability Center, and he's with us right now. Neil, welcome to Fairness Radio. Hi, thanks for having me on. Great to join today. Neil, tell us about your study, and also tell us what prompted you to undertake this study. Yeah, so um, I, as, as you mentioned, I uh, work at uh, the Constitutional Accountability Center, and a few years ago we were noticing that it seemed like the Chamber of Commerce, uh, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, uh, which files uh, often uh, before the court in what are known as amicus or front of the court briefs, uh, was doing very – it seemed like they were doing very well before the court. And so we thought we would dig a little bit deeper and see exactly how well they were doing um, before the Roberts Court, and then also see um, was this different than uh, how they'd been doing in the past before other courts, say before the the Rehnquist Court or uh, even the Berger Court. And uh, so we dug in and looked at the numbers, and it turns out that, uh, indeed, the, Ch- the U.S. Chamber of Commerce has been doing um, better before uh, the Roberts Court than they ever have uh, in their history of litigation before the U.S. Supreme Court, which goes back all the way into the 1970s. Um, and uh, this term in particular uh, so far has been tremendously successful for the, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, with them going a perfect 7-0, and batting a 1,000 before the Supreme Court so far this term, with just two cases left to be decided um, here tomorrow, which will be the last day of the of the court's term. Well, before we get into uh, why that may be, were there any cases that are particularly key in in this perfect record this year? Um, yeah. So so far, um, so t- uh, two of the big cases are still left to be decided. Um, uh, one is a standing case uh, called First American Financial Corp. Uh, and then the other is the the, the health care litigation, which the chamber is actually participating in in a limited capacity, just saying that if the court finds the individual mandate unconstitutional, then it should go ahead and strike down the entire act rather than just a few of its specific provisions. Um, but so far this term, kind of the other uh, big, uh, hotly divided case is, is a case uh, called uh, Christopher versus uh, Smith-Klein, 
which uh, has to do with whether uh, uh, certain uh, uh, pharmaceutical sales reps are entitled to uh, overtime under provision of federal law. Um, and that case was divided 5-4 along ideological lines. And one of the things that's interesting about it is you have the majority in that case uh, uh, composed entirely of conservative justices saying that uh, the federal law does not provide overtime protection to those workers and reaching that result um, by really doing a kind of purposive inquiry that justices like uh, Justice Scalia and other conservatives often deride uh, uh, liberals on the court for doing. Uh, and, and, you know, the, the, it seemed like uh, the answer was clear in terms of the text of the language that that these workers should get overtime protections, but they kind of went beyond that and looked to, well, what are the overall purposes of this, and, and, and found that kind of carved out an industry exception for the pharmaceutical industry uh, based on the, the chamber's recommendation and others to, uh, to, to not provide protection to these workers. And so that's kind of the one that sticks out so far, but it'll be interesting to see what happens tomorrow and, and if they keep their perfect record. Well, in um, your answer there, you use the word ideological, and Americans like to think that, that judges are neutral, that they, they just apply the law. Uh, in your opinion, and as a result of this study that you've done, do you think there is ideology in operation at the Supreme Court? So I guess I'll answer that in two ways. Um, you know, first, uh, I think to, to some degree, you know, you've heard people say, well, where you stand is where you sit. Right. And and the 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 statistics uh that we've examined uh unfortunately kind of bear that out um and and those statistics are that you know the the as as i mentioned uh, the chamber has done better before the roberts court than they ever have before winning uh 68% of their cases compared to just 56% before uh the rehnquist court in a period we studied from 1994 to 2005 and then just 43% uh, before the Burger Court uh, during a period from 1981 to 1986. Uh, and so explaining, well, where does that, where is that increase coming from, if you break out um, the numbers based upon ideological block, um, you start to get some answers. Uh, you know, it's a complicated question, but, you know, some answers do start to come out, and, and basically uh, the average level of support uh, among the conservative members on the court in the Roberts court is uh, 71%, while on the, the moderate or liberal block, they're only supporting the chamber 44% of the time. And so you start to see a little bit of an explanation of the conservative justices disproportionately supporting uh, the chamber position, while uh, the moderate liber liberal justices are much less inclined to do so. Well, in your opinion, and, and uh based on your study, does this mirror a larger trend in the Roberts Court uh, being either pro-business or anti-consumer or anti-union? Yeah, I mean, generally speaking, even beyond the chamber cases, uh, I think the, the general trends uh, in terms of the success of, 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 of business interests before the court, other studies have kind of bore out similar numbers. Um, and, and where it really, uh, where kind of the rubber meets the road in terms of the ideological divide is particularly in the close cases um, that the court hears on these issues, you know, where uh, the case is decided by five justices in a vote, you know, a, a different direction would lead to a different outcome. Um, and here it's even more ideologically divided, and the chamber is doing even better. So the chamber has won 
uh, 76% of these close cases um, and the ideological division in these close cases where five justices decided, decided the cases, 83% support from uh, conservatives with only 16 support from the moderate and liberal bloc. And so you really do start to see that you know, when uh, the issues are really sharpened and there is a divide on the court, it has uh, more often than not broke down along traditional ideological lines. Well, could it be that, that consumer regulation, union advocacy, has simply reached a point of uh, stretching the Constitution that uh, the, the court, and particularly the conservative bloc of the court, um, feels it's time to push back and reset the equilibrium? that this isn't really uh, uh, ideological, but it's the nature of the cases coming before it? Well, and so uh, there's another case, this decision, that, that might maybe gets to that point a little bit more. Um, it's this case called a Knox versus a SEIU, which um, deals with uh, a case that the chamber actually did not file in, um, but it's a case that deals with uh, uh, unions and uh, the ability to... Uh, uh, it's, it's called the agency shop arrangements, basically where uh, uh, unions uh, charge members fees for uh, certain uh, kind of expressive activity, First Amendment activity, and and in this case, uh, again, on the on the on the critical part of the decision is divided five four along ideological lines, with uh, the dissenters and the liberals basically accusing the majority of of reaching out to decide an issue that the parties themselves hadn't brought before the court. And so um, the uh, Justice Alito wrote for the majority and and basically uh, kind of set aside uh, the court's historical precedent uh, to say that, uh, which is which is supported allowing uh, workers to opt out of, of these kinds yeah. of fees if, if they're not interested in, in, in paying them. Yeah, we, uh, we discussed that on the show. Okay, exactly. Yeah. And so... Uh, uh, you know, opt out versus opt in, right. and and Justice Alito said, you know, constitutionally in this situation, uh, the requirement is opt in versus opt out, which has been kind of the precedent up until this point, and opens the door for, uh, you know, potential cases down the road. And the and the concern of the dissenters was, this wasn't even an issue that was being argued by the parties. The conservative justices just reached out and and grabbed this issue on their own, uh, well, of course, without any kind of that's also what they did with Citizens United, that that particular case was not on the docket before them. They reached out and, and uh, decided a case that uh, they hadn't been uh, asked to decide on. Isn't that the case? Yeah, precisely. And so, yeah, in Citizens United, it was a, a very narrow statutory question um, that the parties had brought to the court and that their uh, their advocates were arguing to the court. And the conservative justices transformed that into this, this big constitutional case about, you know, whether its past precedent should be overturned and, and whether the whether corporations should be treated the same as people for purposes of the First Amendment, dramatically changing uh, you know 100 years of uh, of con- constitutional law and 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 uh, uh, you know congressional and state law. And as we also recently saw this week, uh, you know they summarily reversed uh, a decision on the Man- Montana Supreme Court right. that would have. Uh, uh, that was basically challenging the, the continuing validity of that Citizens United decision. Um, what are the practical effects for the man and woman in the street, the middle class of this uh, business tilt of the uh, 
the current uh, Supreme Court uh, conservative majority? Well, uh, I mean, I think, uh, you know, it's kind of, you know, the, re- the rhetoric around it, I guess, when you, when you, if you, if you've had the chance to walk up to the Supreme Court itself and you look at the top of the building, uh, it's inscribed on the top, equal justice for all, and that's uh, an important American principle going all the way back to the founding that um, whether you're rich or poor, uh, whatever party you're a member of, uh, you know, whoever you are, uh, when you come before the court, justice is blind, and the law is the law, and you'll you'll have your chance to be equally heard. And the criticism that some have been getting here is that you know, instead of the sign saying e- e- uh, equal justice under the law, uh, uh, some have said that uh, it says open for business, and that's the wrong signal to send to Americans who think that uh, you know uh, the the third branch of government is is one where. Uh, you you should have an equal chance to uh, to prevail. You know sometimes when politics seems like it's uh, kind of you know captured. I mean the, the U.S. Chamber also does very well in the legislative branches and, and before you know the executive uh, with their kind of teams of lobbyists. Uh, and now this seems like you know the kind of last bastion for justice for the common American is is also being uh, thrown into question, which uh, you know raises doubts among many of of uh, the direction the court is going. Well, of course, um, Justice Scalia's um, um, very vocal and very strident um, dissent uh, from the bench on the Arizona case was, uh, um, I know, brought a lot of people, even conservatives, saying that, uh, wait a minute, uh, maybe we're going a little too far here. But I want to uh, introduce you to my my friend and co-host, Chuck Morris. Thank you, Patrick, and thanks for joining us, Neil. Hi, Chuck. Thanks. Firstly, I would hope that all of the Supreme Court justices are pro-business, and I would be really quite um, shocked by the proposition that any of them are anti-business. After all, you know, the Constitution, 14th Amendment, says that we have a right to life, liberty, and property, and uh, the country is founded on private ownership and business. Um, I think that the two cases that you mentioned in the beginning of your presentation Possibly, if those are a reflection of the cases that the U.S. Chamber of Commerce is writing amicus briefs for, they're not a reflection of the Supreme Court coming in and creating new laws that are preferring specific businesses or even business in general. What they are are negative decisions in that they're telling the the government, in this case the federal government, not to interfere in business in in certain circumstances because to do so it would be unconstitutional. There's nothing in the Constitution that would give them the authority to do that because, uh, you know, in general it's um, it's the idea that um, you, you try to give a certain amount of deference to freedom, free markets, capitalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I think that uh, – but I want to ask you firstly because I want to talk about this recent sure. case with the unions, but before we get to that, I just want to clear something up here. Sure. Are you in any way implying that the U.S. Supreme Court, I mean, I mean that the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, through their amicus briefs and through the improvement of the um, of the cases decided in their favor, that they have some kind of a um, control or influence over any of the Supreme Court judges? Well, I mean, uh, I, I, you know, uh, my own organization, we file amicus briefs briefs before the court, too, and, I mean, certainly the, the, the purpose of amicus briefs is to influence the court and right. to help persuade them 
uh, which direction they should decide. And, and I guess all kind of our study is showing is that the arguments uh, and the positions that the U.S. Chamber has been taking before the court have been particularly persuasive uh, to the conservative justices. But they're not saying, because I've heard some wild statements on this program about the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and corporations owning Supreme Court ju- judges. You're not saying that. I would that, say that that's hyperbole. I would. Okay, thank you. Uh, now, the case that was just decided with regard to unions, I mean, I've read about it in the press. I have not uh-huh. read the actual case. But sure. my understanding is that that was that the, um, the, the, the public unions, and we're talking public unions here, not private unions, yeah. in the state of California were taking assessments, what they called euphemistically assessments, out of the paychecks of non-union state employees without their knowledge. Yeah. And once mm-hmm. a year they would get a notice you know, saying, oh, by the way, we took this money out. And in many cases probably people didn't realize that the money was being taken out and that that money was, or at least a portion of that money, was being used to support political parties and candidates. Mm-hmm. Now, it seems to me that it's kind of a no-brainer that that would be seriously questionable constitutionally. Yeah. I'm actually shocked that any judge would not understand that. And, and so there's actually two parts of what the court decided. And and the first part um, is kind of basically what you mentioned, is that they weren't giving sufficient notice of this um, mm-hmm. to the employees to give them a, a chance to say, wait a minute, I don't, I don't want my money going towards that. And, and right. that was actually got that that actually got the vote of seven justices. Um, the area that was that was more controversial is what I was talking about earlier, um, which is uh, Justice Alito and the other conservative justices' decision that rather than so kind of the history of the precedent on the court is um, so for certainly those workers have a First Amendment interest in, in not um, paying money to things that uh, expressive activity that they don't support. But the mm-hmm. Supreme Court precedent has always said that an opt-out uh, uh, option is sufficient to protect those First Amendment interests. And what is new with this case and what is suggesting that the court is going a new direction is, is saying that the, the, first, um, the First Amendment now requires um, uh, an opt-in opt arrangement in. rather than an opt-out. And so that's a, that's a dramatic shift uh, in the court's precedent going back you know, 30, 40, 50 years, uh, and that's what the court was most divided on, and that was an issue that the parties themselves hadn't brought up and hadn't argued. And so the concern there is, you know, the the Supreme Court deciding questions that haven't had a chance to have the parties that are, in theory, um, you know, the parties that are have these issues at stake even get a chance to argue one way or the other. Um, They they just had to decide it for them without a chance to say anything about it either way. And And that's what's um, kind of a disturbing trend with the Citizens United in this case of the court not just reaching out to decide issues, but then not even giving um, the parties a chance to uh, try to convince them one way or the other. And that's and that's generally what not what courts do. Okay. Now the first part, the main part of the case though, was the issue of the taking money out of people's paychecks without them knowing it. And that I, you you agree with me that the the decision on that was um, you know based upon a serious constitutional question. Now, the second part of this, which is the opt-in or opt-out, I would agree with you that the court should not get into that because that's a public policy matter. Mm-hmm. That shouldn't be the court shouldn't be saying anything about that either way, opt-in or opt-out. 
<clears throat> I personally don't think that um, th- that people should be doing it at all. I don't think that if a public employee wants to give money to a campaign, they should write a check to the campaign, not have money taken sure. out of their paychecks by a union that they're not even a member of. And I also don't think public unions should be involved in politics. But that's another sure. question. The fact is that from a constitutional standpoint, the court did make a, a statement on something that was not something that I think should be in front of the Supreme Court, but yet, as you pointed out, Neil, it's something that past courts apparently did rule upon with regard to um, yep. opt-out. So in, a, in that mm-hmm. sense, they did have, I think, the, uh, the right to say something about it because that is part of this law. And in a sense, it was a sop to the liberals by saying, well, we're not going to just simply say nothing is going to happen. We're going to give an option for people to actually continue this practice. Now, the bigger question that you bring up here with regard to this case and also Citizens United is that it's an activist situation if a court gets into ruling on something that you claim is not directly in front of it. Mm-hmm. And um, my, my, my thoughts on that, this is my theory, is that it's only activist if they're ruling in a manner that subverts the Constitution. If they're ruling in a manner mm-hmm. that is supportive of constitutional principles, then courts do this all the time. Judges do it all the time on the local level, on the state level. You know, they have somebody before them, and part of the whole philosophy of an independent judiciary is that they do have a right in certain circumstances. Certainly juries do it all the time, and even to the degree that there's jury nullification, that they can take a look at a situation and they can then rule upon it in any way they want. The only question is whether or not the ruling is constitutional is consistent with the laws or if it's subversive of the constitution and i think in the case of both this um, decision made uh, with regard to the case just recently and also citizens united for better or for worse their rulings are entirely constitutional let me before you answer uh, let me just uh, remind our listeners you listen to fairness radio with chuck and patrick on the blog talk radio network the cyber station usa network and our radio Affiliates, and we are talking about the uh, Supreme Court and business, and we're talking with Neil Weir of the Constitutional Accountability Center. Go, Neil. So, Chuck, I, I think you do raise a good point. I mean, obviously, uh, an important concern is whether uh, cases are correctly decided under the Constitution, and we can get into a discussion about that on, in terms of these specific cases. Uh, that's something that you know our, organiz- our organizations participate in a lot of these big cases before the Supreme Court. But there is an important process point uh, of, of how courts go about making decisions in our in our adversarial system and in our system that does not allow for you know so-called advisory opinions by uh, the Supreme Court. Uh, the Supreme Court can only decide the cases that are brought to it by uh, adversarial parties, and that's you know this, this case that's going to be decided tomorrow on standing. That's one of the issues: is you know should the courts even be getting into it uh, if there's not a sufficient injury uh, such that the parties are truly adversarial and truly have a stake in um, sufficiently arguing the cases. And that's the danger when the court decides these big, uh, important constitutional questions. Um, kind of out of thin air, you know, reaching out to decide these issues uh, without giving the parties a chance to discuss them is that they miss the opportunity to uh, get the, uh, you know, persuasive value of the parties, of of amicus, even including, you know, the chamber or organizations like our own. And these big cases 
you know, numerous organizations will submit briefs to the Supreme Court illuminating different areas of the law and the history and the text of the Constitution, um, which leads to, hopefully, in theory, the court reaching uh, better decisions or at least allowing for kind of a robust discussion on these issues. And when the court just does that without giving anyone notice that they're going to be doing so, uh, it really isn't in line with, uh, you know, the course that were set up by the Constitution. Well, actually, I think that, as I said, they do it all the time. They did it in Marbury versus Madison. I mean, this isn't new. The only question is, and they do it on the local level as well, and and I think to kind of question that runs the risk of questioning the the, the whole edifice of an independent judiciary. The question before us that, that's relevant to debate is whether or not those decisions, first of all, they're not totally out of the blue. I mean, they have some relation to the case. But putting that aside, the question is whether or not those decisions are subversive of the Constitution or are they supportive of mm-hmm. the Constitution? Do they build further scaffolding on protecting the Constitution or are they basically sitting there like a like a new constitutional convention and making up new laws, which is obviously which is by the way a comment that was made by William Brennan, um mm-hmm. in that he he viewed his role as a Supreme Court justice as literally having a second constitutional convention, which is completely sure. activist and which is something that is utterly unconstitutional in the classic sense. Yeah, and, and that's uh I think that's a concern among many, you know, looking at the Roberts Court uh, and seeing uh the kind of increasingly uh, aggressive or increasingly uh, kind of asserting itself in these areas and reaching, you know, sometimes the broadest possible decision rather than kind of as was the case more with the Rehnquist court, you know, they would they would have kind of these narrow incremental decisions that would uh, move the law, you know, slightly one direction or the other and allow time for adjustment to see, you know, is this something that's making sense or is it not making sense? Uh, but, you know, I mean, cases like Citizens United, they're swinging for, uh, you know, the stands. And when they connect with five votes, you're getting these far-reaching decisions that just sweep aside uh, prior precedent, sweep aside, uh, you know, the democratically enacted laws, uh, uh, and uh, and in some cases create a, uh, uh, an interpretation of the Constitution that, that, that is strains kind of credulity in the Citizens United case, going back to this Montana case that was before the court this week, uh, you know, the idea that no kind of independent expenditure could create the appearance of corruption, uh, uh, it, which is what the court said in Citizens United, is one that is just almost unbelievable these days with all the activity of super PACs going on and, and that we see. And and so it's just, uh, I think what is making some people a bit concerned is uh, both the you know the the result in the case but not just the result the scope of the decision uh and ignoring kind of past precedent and past judicial practices we need to take a 30 second break or so for our stations to identify themselves we'll be right back you're listening to fairness radio with chuck and patrick on the blog talk radio network the cyber station usa network and our radio
You listen to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick on the Blog Talk Radio Network, the Cyber Station USA Network, and our radio affiliates. And this segment brought to you by Barton Publishing. BartonPublishing.com is your source of information to manage your health and your body naturally without resorting to expensive or possibly toxic drugs. And when you go to Barton Publishing, you can... Click on any one of the many topics there, whether it's the common cold or arthritis or acid reflux, and you'll be given information. You'll be given a list of books or pamphlets or diets or whatever it is written by doctors and by experts. Joe Barton has gone out and he's gotten the best people in the world to write uh, information for you. And let me just make sure you understand, he doesn't sell pills, he doesn't sell cures, he sells information that you then use to manage your health and your body. And when you select one of those information packets and a price comes up, it's usually about $20. If you put the word fairness in the coupon code, right there before your eyes you see the price cut in half down to $10. And when you click buy, it appears on your screen. You don't have to wait. You don't have to wait for the mail person. You don't have to pay handling charges. You can get hard copies if you want, but most people just like those PDFs that appear right there on the screen. So you get immediate information, you get inexpensive information, and you get the best information that you can use. So that's Barton Publishing, www.bartonpublishing.com. We're talking with Neil Weir, and we're ta- uh, he's from the uh, Constitutional Accountability Center. He's uh, published a very interesting study showing that the U.S. Chamber of Commerce has a perfect record this year before the the uh, Supreme Court, and he's also uh, looked into Supreme Court, this particular, the Roberts Court uh, decisions regarding business. And I just to just wonder, um, Neil, is one of the reasons that, the, that the, uh, the Chamber of Commerce doing so well before the Supreme Court is that they really know what they're doing, they've got good, strong cases, good, strong lawyers, that this is just a, um, a case of, of people who are good doing their job? Well, um, they certainly have uh, the best lawyers money can buy representing them in the case. And so, uh, you know, I, I think that the, the, the quality of advocacy uh, is very high. Um, but it's, it's not clear how that would, uh, would completely explain uh, kind of the, uh, the, uh, the ever-increasing levels of success they've had before the court, because presumably uh, they also had uh, the best money could buy, you know, before the Rehnquist court and also before the Berger court, um, where they were much less successful. And so I, I don't think that the, the level of success they've had uh, before the court can just be explained uh, by advocacy alone that that there is more uh, kind of going into it. So, and would it be a correct statement to say that uh, the successive Republican administrations that have had the opportunity to, to uh, appoint Supreme Court justices have strategically created a court that will lean towards uh, business uh, when it's presented with cases that. Uh, pit business against unions or, or against uh, regulators or against the middle class? Um, so well, I guess what I would say on that is it, it's actually kind of an interesting history, and this, this goes back to the chamber, which is uh, that before uh, Justice Lewis Powell uh, joined the Supreme Court, actually I think just a year or two before, if not even sooner, uh, he actually submitted a memo to the Chamber of Commerce saying that um, they needed to spend much more resources in advocating um, before the Supreme Court and influencing the courts to promote um, their business interests. 
and uh, shortly after that, he he joined uh, the Supreme Court as a justice, and 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 shortly after that, the chamber in fact did create their uh, national chamber litigation center, um, which is the uh, is the arm of the chamber that files all of these cases, and so. Uh, really, beginning at that time, it has been uh, a very, uh, uh, you know, planned uh, uh, approach of the chamber to try to influence the court, both in, in cases and, you know, and and beyond that. And and certainly, uh, that's something that that goes on into the political realm as well. And of course, this was the Justice Powell that wrote the infamous Powell memo, which laid out the. Infamous? The, well, I think it's infamous. The others think it's famous. Uh, that that laid out a strategy for moving uh, the United States population more towards business and the right. Uh, but on, on that particular topic, though, Chuck made a very uh, good point that one of the four pillars of the economy and of this country is business, and that is enshrined in the Constitution in Article 14. Is it unsurprising huh. that we would see um, majorities of the Supreme Court now and then rule in favor of business, and is that necessarily bad? Yeah, and so I guess on that point I, I would just push back a little bit that um, uh, the Supreme Court has repeatedly said that there's not a theory of economics enshrined in the Constitution, and so there's not a, you know, a free market theory or a socialist theory or you know, a communist theory or a capitalist theory. Um, the Constitution doesn't speak to economic theories, and uh, the danger uh, of that is uh, was highlighted during a period of the court uh, uh, known as the Lochner period, where the court really did uh, kind of. Uh, put its thumb on the side of this kind of free market economy, um, relying on the 14th Amendment in a way that actually is against its text and against its history to say uh, that things like minimum wage laws are unconstitutional, that laws, uh, you know, uh, protecting uh, women in work or children or maximum uh, wage hour laws uh, are all unconstitutional. Um, and the court... Uh, at the end of the Lochner period, uh, went back against that and said, you know, this is not something that the Constitution says. This is not something that the court should be involved in and trying to pr impress upon the Constitution our own personal uh, economic views. And, and that's really a danger that some people have highlighted is happening with the current court, that they're Lochnerizing issues like, like the First Amendment when it comes to uh, the speech of corporations or uh, uh, other areas of speech. Uh, and even even to some degree with the healthcare case, and so that's really a a, a type of of constitutional uh, interpretation that has been widely discredited by folks on both the left and the right. Um, but um, folks on both the left and right are starting to say there's some some fears of that with what's going on with the court today. Well, uh, Neil, first of all, Patrick, I mean I've read the Powell memo in its entirety. I'm sure you have too, Neil. Yes, I have. Sure. And it's it's nothing conspiratorial about it. It's public and it's brilliant. What uh, what uh, Powell was saying was that the very left wing Warren Brennan court and the culture in general had uh, attacked private ownership to the degree that in the minds of the general public, um, private ownership of capital had become a negative thing, and that he advocated countering that through intellectual means. He wanted to develop think tanks. He wanted to promote professors and economists at colleges to try to give a voice or, or to reassert a voice of private uh, owners. And he wanted to do it because he believed that this is what the country was about. 
Now, as far as whether the Constitution advocates a, a, an economic system, I would argue that it does to the degree that it, it advocates limited government, which allows for private individuals and private companies to function. That is not, and that's not an ideology. I don't view capitalism as an ideology. It's what happens when people are left free to do what they want. So it's not that it's uh, the decisions that we're talking about here, again, are not positive decisions and that the court is stepping in and saying we're going to give special privileges to these businesses or those businesses, which is something that I think is unconstitutional. What they're saying is we think that the government has exceeded its authority to the degree that it's unfairly interfering in the commerce of the citizens. And we're going to protect the right of the citizens to conduct their commerce without coercive government interference. And that the government, you know, we talk about Citizens United. I mean, I think that they took a look at the free speech issues here, and they ruled from a strictly constitutional standpoint that people and groups of people assembled have a right to express their opinions in any way they want. But yet I'm not against the idea of governments, states and local governments, passing laws to regulate uh, campaign activities mm -hmm. and campaign yeah. contributions. Mm -hmm. I actually think they were wrong in the Montana decision. That should have but, been left mm -hmm. to the state. Neil, there's a lot of points there. Uh, do you want to uh, respond? Um, sure, yeah. I mean, I, I guess I would I would just, you know, go back and, and say uh, 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 that, uh, you know, especially on the Citizens United point, uh, uh, you know, conservative, even conservative justices for many years uh, supported uh, the underlying basis of of, of the, the the constitutional reasoning that that allowed for these kinds of campaign finance laws, and actually, the biggest uh, proponent of allowing uh, a government through its elected officials to uh, regulate uh, corporate corporate political speech was actually uh, Justice William Rehnquist. Um, he uh, was the loudest proponent of of recognizing that. Corporations are actually the creation of government. They receive special benefits from the government in terms of their limited liability um, and, and other uh, special uh, kind of benefits. And that he said that that justified, uh, in turn, these special regulations on their speech. And that's not to say that uh, corporations have absolutely no uh, you know, right to speak or no First Amendment rights. Um, but only that they can be regulated in a manner that's different than actual flesh and blood people based upon the different nature of, of their existence. And, and that's where um, uh, a lot of people are criticizing the court for overstepping its bounds to say that you know corporations, while different in terms of them getting special benefits that citizens don't get, uh, you know, a, a corporation can't go to jail, for instance, uh, uh, that uh, that they are going to be treated the same when it comes to the protections granted them under the, uh, granted under the Constitution, and that and that's just a, a shift, um, really, from where uh, the founders were. Uh, the founders are very skeptical of corporations and and really kept them limited within the charters, you know, created by the states, uh, and also the concern that the founders had over corruption, which. Uh, uh, was mentioned uh, numerous times at the Constitutional Convention was a theme that ran throughout uh, the Federalist Papers, and this idea that uh, uh, anti-corruption is not something that the court should uh, take into consideration when when deciding these things, I think, as you said, is something that goes you know beyond the role of the courts, particularly when it comes to local communities like Montana or other places who are who are really close to the ground to decide these issues for themselves without without the court involvement. 
Well, I'll believe corporations are people when I see the entire board and all the senior executives of General Electric over in Afghanistan fighting for freedom. But um, to, to Chuck's point, we just have a couple of minutes here. Sure. What is the role of free enterprise and capitalism in the Constitution? I mean, Chuck made a, a very interesting point there. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, what, what the Constitution stands for, and I, I would push back a little bit to say what it stands for is, is limited government. What it stands for is uh, government by the people and for the people. And so when the people get together and decide uh, that they want to have uh, a universal health care system so that the health care of all Americans is, is protected and guaranteed, and in order to reduce, uh, you know, the cost of health care, um, that that's something that is, is fully within um you know the 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 government's purview to say uh this, you know this is a problem that the the states have tried to solve individually but can't uh, as history has shown and it's it's something that needs a national solution uh and 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 this is an area that's appropriate for uh you know elected officials uh through the democratic process that's created in the constitution with its uh separation of powers and and numerous checks and balances that if uh, the people get something through, the default should be we trust the people. And that's uh, one of the criticisms of the court is they've been uh, increasingly striking down laws dem passed uh, democratically by the people um, through, uh, through a political process that there, there doesn't seem to be anything uh, a matter with. Well, we're going to be struck down by the networks if we don't get off the air pretty soon because we're out of time. Neil, I want to thank you very much for, for uh, being with us today. Patrick, I'd like thank to you. get in one last question here. Um, uh, no, we don't have time for questions. No, we I'm do. sorry. We don't have time for questions. We're, we're, we've only got 20 seconds. So, Neil, Supreme Court Fellow of the Constitutional Accountability Center. Follow Neil and the Center at the USConstitution.org. And uh, you're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. And, again, thank you very much for being with us, Neil. Thank you.
Hour 2 of Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. I'm Patrick O'Heffernan in Los Angeles, co-hosting with Chuck Morris in Boston. It's June 27, 2012, and we are the only radio program in America that routinely listens to voices from all sides. We're pushing the boundaries of radio. We are broadcast Monday through Friday from 1 to 3 p.m. Eastern on CyberStationUSA.com, BlogTalkRadio.com, and our radio affiliates. You can be part of the show. You can call us, 675-6806. You can email us at fairnessradio at gmail.com. And don't forget to check our Twitter feed. Sign up for our Twitter feed and also like us on Facebook. If you do, you get advance notice of who the guests are. And check out our website, fairnessradio.com. Well, before we open up for our radio audience, we're in a news break right now. Let me introduce you to my friend and colleague, our co-host, Chuck Morris. Hi, Chuck. Hi, Patrick. We may be getting a call back in from Neil Weir. I oh, asked him. I, I called him off the air. There's okay. no reason why we couldn't have held him over into this segment. Oh, no, we can hold him over. We just had to go to a break. Well, but the thing is you kind of let him go, and I had another question. Oh, okay. And well, we have a little time here. If he calls back in, fine. In fact, here he is, so why don't I bring him on right now? Thanks so much. Neil, thank you for calling back in, and Chuck has a question sure. for you. Sure. Neil, I just wanted to clarify one thing before we, we conclude the interview. Patrick sure. mentioned this idea that the Supreme Court had declared corporations as people. Now, that's something that we've talked to various <clears throat> constitutional experts on, uh, both left and right, and they've said, as I've said, that that's not exactly what they did. That's kind of an urban myth. Um, can you please elaborate on that and respond to that? Sure. Um, and so I'd, I'd actually encourage uh, encourage your listeners and or yourselves to to visit our website, uh, which uh, which Patrick had mentioned before is uh, theusconstitution.org. We've mm-hmm. actually put together uh, a, a, what we call a text and history narrative on uh, on that very question of what are the origins of the constitutional treatment of corporations before the Supreme Court. It's called a, a capitalist joker, the strange origins, disturbing past, and uncertain future of corporate personhood in American law. And uh, and what it really shows is that there is uh, this history of uh, corporations uh, developing uh, over time more and more aspects of being treated like people for constitutional purposes. And sometimes that you know that makes sense for certain constitutional provisions like uh, search and seizure. You know, no one would want uh, the government to be able to just go in and, and raid corporate offices without uh, any kind of justification for doing so. Um, but in, in areas of, of corporate political speech, uh, it is where that kind of starts to break down a little bit, and and and, it, and you, you do start to recognize that maybe there are. Um, some reasons uh, why corporations should be treated differently than people um, for the purposes of these constitutional provisions. And actually, just to, to pull out one quote from, uh, as I mentioned, Justice William Rehnquist, uh, then-Justice William Rehnquist, uh, who became Chief Justice, who was very outspoken in this area, he said, in a democracy, the economic is subordinate to the political, a lesson that our ancestors learned long ago and that our descendants will undoubtedly have to relearn many years hence. And that was in a dissent to a decision uh, where the court began to recognize uh, that there were even first, that there's First Amendment speech rights in the context of even commercial speech, so just advertising. And that's right. an area that the Roberts Court has expanded dramatically on, uh, uh, recently deciding well, my that. Question, 
my question to you, Neil, and I think, look, corporations obviously are formed by people because they want certain special immunities and whatnot, and that's an agreement, a charter between the corporation and the state, and the state has the right to regulate the corporation and should. But my right. question to you is whether or not the Supreme Court has declared corporations as people. Is that Because this is one of those things that's tossed out there as if it was part of a particular decision, was it? Um, well, I mean, I, I guess uh, it's a bit inartful of a term, uh, but I think it's a useful one in the context, particularly of Citizens United, where um, they they basically say that uh, that um, uh, that that the Constitution and and that the court should not distinguish between the speech made by flesh and blood. Uh, people and the speech made by these corporate entities and that, or any group. Um, but the point is, they didn't declare. Look, any group has a right to speak collectively, even though I hate that word. Uh, whether it be you know sure, national organization so. of and they can do whether, so in that, whether in it that be form. A, a union or national organization of women yeah. or a corporation, but they didn't declare corporations as people. I mean, that's not there. I mean, I haven't well, seen but, that. But in that case, I mean, one of the and this is one of the things that the majority said was. It wasn't sufficient that groups of people in a corporation got together and formed a pact to speak um, that the cons- that they believed the Constitution actually required the corporation itself using treasury funds um, to be able to influence uh, you know and to, to be able to speak in this in this political fashion mm-hmm. um, and that kind of goes back to your prior point in saying you know I mean there's a concern there um, you know corporate shareholders without being told uh, their money that they're uh, investing in the corporation is being used um, to pay but for political attack the, ads that they have no, uh, they have no well, yeah, knowledge but that's or a pri- they If it's a private company, it's between the private company and the shareholders. If it's a public corporation, as you say, using treasury money, then yes. I mean, that's a different matter. But I think that there was nothing said about a private corporation being as a person. That, that's just my only point, Neil. Before you, before you answer, we have to uh, take a break and uh, welcome in our uh, affiliates. Um, from Cyber Station USA, it's Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. It's time to welcome our radio listeners on 1490 WWPR in Tampa Bay, Bradenton, Florida, KSKQFM in Ashland, Oregon. I'm Patrick O'Heffernan. I'm in California. I'm co-hosting with Chuck Morris in Boston. We'd love to have you here. Four two four six seven five sixty eight zero six, or you can email us fairnessradio at gmail dot com, and don't forget to check out our website fairnessradio dot com. Uh, Neil, isn't wasn't it the combination of uh, of, of determining that uh, money equals speech, and also determining that corporations have the same rights as people when it comes to free speech that has generated this controversy? Isn't the combination of those two decisions? Yeah, and so uh, the money is speech principle that was first decided in the Buckley case in the in the 1970s, uh, and and then adding on to that is this idea, uh, you know, which is contrary to the court's prior precedent, contrary to our history, that uh, corporations uh, uh, can't be regulated in the, in a way that's different than the regulation of individuals when it comes to political speech. Uh, mm-hmm. And and you know that's you know that's something that uh, my organization has also written about, and we have uh, some some, uh, some uh, we have a, a current project we're doing called uh, uh, the Constitution at Crossroads, which examines the ideological divide in the court across a number of different constitutional areas, and and one of them is this area of of uh, campaign uh, you know of corporations, political speech, and campaign finance. Uh, examining exactly those kinds of divides. Well, listen, I, w- I appreciate you joining us, Neil. I would also ask about whether or not that includes 
nonprofit corporations and foundations and their use of money and speech. There's a new book out about that by David Horowitz I'm reading called The New Leviathan. But uh, I appreciate you joining us. Well, my pleasure, and thanks Thank- for thanks for having me on. Thank you, Neil. And and from time to time, we would love to be able to call upon you again on constitutional questions. Sure. Okay. Have a great day. And again, that was Neil Weir of the the Constitutional Accountability uh, Center, and um, we uh, were very fortunate that he was able to call back in and clear this up. I want to remind our listeners that you can be part of this, fairnessradio at gmail.com, fairnessradio at gmail.com, or you can call up 424-675-6806. In a few minutes, we're going to be uh, joined by um, a a best-selling author, Sam Popkin, who has worked in um, presidential political campaigns. I think every single one since I've been uh, alive and aware of presidential political campaigns. He has a great new book out on that, and he's going to tell us about what it takes to uh, win the White House and what it takes to keep the White House. Along those lines, I don't know, Chuck, did you happen to catch the uh, the new HBO uh, uh, series called uh, The Newsroom? No, I didn't. Uh, generating a lot of buzz. It's um, very political. <laughs> it's sure. Aaron Sorkin, so you can imagine. Oh, uh, yeah, sure. Uh, it, Isn't it, uh, he? Uh, wasn't that um, that thing with um, what's West his Wing. name? I mean, yeah, West Wing. That's right. right. He did he did West Wing and a number of other things. We've got a sure. new one out that that looks into the heart of. Uh, it could be CBS. It could be CNN. It could be Fox News. It depends on 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 the the, the week. I suspect it's probably CNN. But how the news is made and manipulated. Uh, it's very it, it premiered. Uh, Sunday night. If you if you get a chance next Sunday, uh, take a look at it because I suspect it's going to be uh, very influential and have a lot to a lot of people talking about it. They already are, to say the least. So. Patrick, also over over my vacation, one of my books is going to be David Horowitz's The New Leviathan. Did you get it? Uh, no, I haven't gotten it yet, and I've asked David to uh, come on after you come back. I haven't heard back from him yet, but I'm sure he will. He's always very, very thorough in his documentation. You want to talk about money and politics. I mean, check this book out. I'm just starting it. It's amazing. It's as good as anything. It's as good as I expected it to be from him. And um, it's just uh, it's very revealing. Um, he's, isn't this uh, the David Horowitz who's uh, launched a, sort of a um, quixotic uh, attack on uh, professors around the country? Yes, it's the very self-same one. I don't know if I'd call it quixotic. I actually think he's had a good deal of influence. Uh, but, well, yes, he actually goes around to colleges and speaks, and he gets shouted down, and it's he's he's quite a character. You oh, know, he's yeah. a former left-winger. He in was in the Black Panthers back in the 70s. Wow. <laughs> he was the editor of Ramparts Magazine in San Francisco. Right. That's where I know his name from. And actually, I've met him a number of times back in those days when I was the uh, associate editor of the Berkeley Barb. Okay. There you go. Yeah. You know, the the, the, the brain cells are still working occasionally there. You know, there's an, he wrote a, a biography. It was an autobiography called Radical Son. His parents had, had been communists. Uh-huh. And it's very good. It's very interesting. Okay. It's uh, worth worth a read. Well, we should, we should tell our... Um, or you should tell our listeners uh, what dates you're going to be gone. Well, I'll be gone from this. I'll be leaving to, tomorrow. Actually, th- tomorrow will be my last show for before I leave for my vacation. I'll be back, um, I think, July 25th. I well, believe you're going to be third. gone most of July. 
Right. I'll, I'll be back the third week of uh, July. What do you have coming up in those weeks, Patrick? Anything? Uh, well, I, mean, I, I know you're taking a week off. Yeah, I'm. Uh, actually, I won't be taking a, a, a week off. So I'll be taking a few days off. And for our listeners, just let you know that July 4th, 5th, and 6th, we are not going to be live. You're going to be able to listen to the best of, but mm-hmm. we're going to be celebrating the the holidays over those. But I'm not I'm not taking a, a vacation. Uh, no trips to Peru this year, unfortunately. Right. <laughs> right. Are you, you going to bring in a good, solid, conservative co-host, or are you just going to wing it and do uh, interviews? Probably both. I'm going to ask uh, Sean Belot um, and also Sam Blumenfield if they'll uh, come in for, mm-hmm. for, for various uh, aspects of it. But uh, right. and other, other days, you know, they're both busy. Sure. So you conservatives are always so busy, it's hard to get you to, to, to commit. To well, we actually work for a living, Patrick. <laughs> <laughs> I know, real I work with you. <laughs> you know, we're trying to pay our forty-two percent of our income in taxes, so right. we have to keep up with it. We don't get fat cat fan foundations. Well, I wish we. <laughs> At did. least according um, to David Horowitz's book. Yeah, well, I, you know that. I mean, holy mackerel, Patrick! You should read this because this is gonna. This is like my reading a left-wing book about the right. I mean, it tells you where all the money is. I mean, you could take a look at it, go through it, get put, write down the yeah. names, and contact these people. Some of whom you know. Probably I do. Yeah, we should get the you know see if they'll write a check for the fairness radio. You know? Well, we're we're for profit, so foundations don't give checks for for profit. Well, we'll go non profit if they, if I mean it sounds like non profits where the money is. If you look at this book anyway. Uh, well, <laughs> I wish. Uh, coming up next week, we have um, Lynn Stout and her um, uh, her her study on uh, the role of shareholders in corporations. Um, Harmon Kaskow, his book uh, Atlas Shrug 2, and Daryl Miller, who you may know of, um, very strong uh, Christian advocate, uh, radio host, uh, blogger, on yeah. Two Threats to Christianity. And then somebody you may not know, but I'm going to recommend that you get a, you take a look at, Jackie Koppel. Jackie Koppel is a, an actress who assumes a... Um, um, a persona of a conservative Fox News um, uh, anchor and interviews liberals uh, at various liberal organizations. She actually was at Netroots Nation and then posts the interviews on um, on. Uh, oh, I've seen YouTube. it. I sent that to you. Yeah, it's funny. It's very funny. Right. Patrick, please also send me the Daily Wheel because I will be checking email even though I'm in Poland. Yeah, okay, we'll do, we'll do that. Uh, well, well, it turns out Jackie's a neighbor, and I met her at the Chris Hayes event the other night. Yeah, I didn't she's very recognize funny. her because she didn't have her blonde wig on, but um, right. so, so she's going to come on. We're going to take a, um, uh, a break, and when we come back, Sam Popkin will be with us. He's going to talk about what it takes to become a candidate and to win the White House and to hold on to the White House. So stay tuned. You'll listen to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. Don't go away.
back. You listen to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick on the Blog Talk Radio Network, the Cyber Station USA Network, and on our radio affiliates. You can be part of this program, 424-675-6806. We'd love to hear your voice on our show. And if you can't call in, if you're sitting at your computer at work with your headphones on and you don't want your boss to know you're actually listening to us, you can email us. FairnessRadio at gmail.com, FairnessRadio at gmail.com. And don't forget this uh, segment is brought to you by Barton Publishing, BartonPublishing.com, your source of information to manage your body and your health naturally without using toxic or expensive drugs. Well, what goes on inside the vast machinery of a presidential campaign? How does a re-election campaign differ from a first-time challenge? And why was Ronald Reagan so good at winning? Well, these are the kinds of questions our next guest answers in his stunning new book, The Candidate, What It Takes to Win and Hold the White House. Samuel L. Popkin is a professor of political science at the University of California in San Diego. He's also been a consulting analyst in presidential campaigns. He served served the Clinton campaign on polling and strategy. He worked with CBS News election units from 1983 to 1990 on survey design and analysis, and more recently worked uh, with the Gore campaign. Samuel, thank you for being with us today. Fine. Uh, Feel free to call me Sam, too. I'm very happy to be here. Okay, good. Well, uh, Samuel, uh, Sam, (laughs) this book should be required reading for all Americans interested in presidential campaigns. I should say maybe just all Americans in general. Don't we wish they were all interested? Well, yeah, we do. Now, I, you don't know this, but I ran a state presidential primary here in California, and so I thought I had some clue as to what goes on uh, in the big campaign in Washington. But the detail and the insight that you've got in this book showed me that presidential campaign is so much bigger and so much more complex and subtle than even I imagined. So you've done a fabulous job, and you've done it in a way that is entertaining, too. Well, well thank you. And to make sense of it, actually – shocked me and put me in my place because when you're doing the polling and going straight to the message people or the debate people, you think you have the mastery. And you don't know the difference between having a take on an issue and having a position on an issue the way the candidate has to. And you have to listen to people like me one minute and then you've got to listen to Alan Greenspan or Bob Rubin or Colin Powell, and, you know, what they say matters, too. (laughs) Probably sometimes more. Well, you write that that there are two winners in any presidential campaign, the inevitable winner at the beginning and then the inevitable winner at the end who actually wins. Can you explain why this occurs? Because so often people – okay, no – when you when you're the inevitable winner before the campaign, you've got national standing, money, and endorsements, like Rudy Giuliani, America's mayor, who set records for fundraising endorsements and polls in 2007, or Senator Hillary Clinton, or you could name a host of others, and a lot of them don't have the teamwork necessary to sustain the popularity and fill in the pieces for people as the campaign goes along. And that's where the teamwork really matters. 
Well, well you actually stress that. You, you write that what a winner needs is, is a team that can work with the candidate and the candidate's family and the candidate's strategy. But, and you also point out that the team is actually in some ways more important than strategy and money. Is, is that, is that, am I getting yeah. that right? I would never, we would never say that, you know, the campaign team or the candidate's team was more important than, say, getting unemployment down to 4% or, you know, winning World War II. But there's a huge area where what you make of the economy or the health care or the legislation depends on how the team keeps you agile and resilient. You know, Mike Tyson has this great line. Whenever, when he was the best boxer in the world and the, everybody who was going to be fighting him said, well, we've got a strategy. And then the reporters would ask Tyson about the strategy, and his answer was always, everybody has a strategy till they get hit in the face. <laughs> And that's when the teamwork matters. You're lying there on the mat, and you're dazed in the corner, and they've got 10 seconds to tell you something. And you, if you haven't done it and worked with them and you don't understand them, they might as well be speaking a foreign language. Yeah. Um, I was especially interested in, in the part of your book when you talk about the Gore campaign. And, and, you know, liberals claim that Gore actually won the election, but he was robbed by the conservative Supreme Court. But you paint a picture of a campaign that a campaign team that never really got up and running smoothly. Do you now, think it's a very painful experience that yeah, campaign. Yeah, you want to tell us about that? Well, this is a campaign that snatched defeat from the jaws of victory over and over. And it was a a lurching quality. You know, there's only going to be one winner in a campaign. And there are times when you run a great campaign and lose. And I would say an example of that was President Ford, who made up 40 points in a campaign after a collapse in Vietnam and pardoning Richard Nixon and still got better and better and better. And the Gore campaign, every time it got good, it would lurch off on a weird mission. And it was because he never got into one loop the critical family members, the White House staff, the Clinton White House staff, and the strategists. So there were like four campaigns, if you will. Well, that explains a lot. Um, one of the a most very painful experience. Oh, sounds like it. It was for him, obviously. Well, one of the most intriguing chapters, at least to me, was uh, on Hillary Clinton and why she was the inevitable campaign <clears throat> loss. Now, I was a Clinton supporter up until the point where I met the two of them and I was able to spend a little time with the two of them at uh, Netroots Nation um, in Chicago. Uh, and I walked away seeing, with my mind saying that, no, she's not the inevitable winner. Obama is the inevitable winner, and I turned out to be right in that one. But we want to tell our, our, our listeners what you saw inside the, uh, the Hillary Clinton campaign that, that made sure that she, although she was the inevitable winner, she didn't win? Well... I saw a campaign. First, let's be clear. She only lost be, the, the entire nation because she lost in Iowa. Mm. This is the only presidential campaign in history where Iowa truly mattered that much. And it mattered that much because 
the only way African Americans would vote for Barack Hussein Obama, the senator from Illinois, would be if he could prove to them he could get enough white votes to not be Jesse Jackson or a just a protest candidate, because there were no but very few African Americans preferred John Edwards to Hillary Clinton. So the question was, do you send a message or a president? And in Iowa, Hillary Clinton never got a coherent team that knew Iowa that could talk to her national big shots in Washington and could convince her that it's not enough to know how to talk the big issues of the world with the lawyers and the U.N. diplomats. You've got to go spend a little more time in, in, in Quad Cities or Des Moines or Keokuk. And it's very hard to do both, and it's very hard to adapt to that. And her team never understood the importance of the ground game. They were the, the media people had more power than they maybe should have. And every time there was a meeting of her staff, somebody on the staff would go behind the staff's back and call her up and say, I disagree, I don't think you should do it. And she might change her mind and then not tell the chief of staff. So Patty Solis Doyle was never given by Hillary the authority necessary to get the team together and work as a team. Well, speaking of uh, the ground game and and going uh, to the smaller areas, um, you write about uh, President Carter's decision when he was campaigning to go to Pittsburgh and what that entailed and how it affected the campaign. You want to tell our listeners about that? I thought that was fascinating. Jimmy Carter, as a Southern Baptist born-again Christian, worried a lot of Catholics in 1976 because, after all, the South is where the Baptists, the evangelicals, burned crosses and put on the white sheets when Al Smith ran for president. And so there is a natural worry about the despise of the Catholic Church. And he's in and Pennsylvania was critical. And he's in Penn, he's in Pittsburgh to show his comfort level with Irish Americans in this case, because Pete Flaherty's the mayor. And they took him to a meeting with all of the leaders of what was called the Irish National Congress. And he doesn't know much about Ireland, so he talked about his human rights policy. And they said, well, do you apply to Ireland the same human rights policy you'd apply to Russia and China? He said, of course. Not understanding that the way he said it contravened the position of Moynihan, Hugh Carey, and all the other elected potentates of the Democratic Party, and in fact supported the IRA position over the positions of the Republic of Ireland and 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 Great Britain, and there were cabinet meetings in both countries. What do we do with this crisis? And it was only because his team included Richard Holbrook, who knew some of the people, that he was able to convince them that it was an innocent mistake. If it had come out as a repudiation of Carter, if it, the American press had played up this story, I have to say there's no doubt in my mind that Gerald Ford would have been president in 1976. Um, that was uh, the part of the, the uh, that whole story that, that kind of worried me a little bit, that it came so close. But I imagine in, in every presidential campaign there are events like that that come so close 
that if yes. it's just had gone another way, like you said um, in, in um, Iowa for, for Hillary Clinton. Well, I have one more question, and then I want to introduce you to my um, my co-host, and, and that was, um, what was so special about Reagan? What did and what does he have to teach other candidates about winning? Well, first of all, let me say I I played Ronald Reagan in the Praxis debates for President Carter in. 1980, and I'd already been studying him, which is why they had me play him, and I was already impressed with his extraordinary ability to personally choose the words and use the language to make complicated things clear. And I don't mean just trivial, simple, banal. I mean clear in a way beyond the quality of most quotes, better educated, unquotes, people who think they know more. So I was impressed by him. And when I read a lot of the oral histories that nobody's bothered with much by people like uh, Stu Spencer and others in California, I realized a lot of the secret was what he learned in Hollywood. And I don't mean acting, because if it was about acting, you know, Meryl Streep might have been president, or, you know, Cary Grant, or at least Gary Cooper. What he learned was that fluid ability to shuffle roles that you have on a movie set, where you're the star one day and the understudy the next, and you can't be ahead, you can't lead every scene. And also he was a union leader, where he's dealing with these giant egos, and he knew how to give the egos their role and and know when to ignore them and when they were out for themselves. And it was that Hollywood shifting teaming ability as much as any acting ability that was important. And interestingly, Stu Spencer said that the only other Hollywood person he'd ever met who he thought could have been a great politician besides Ronald Reagan was, get ready for this, Warren Beatty. Um, the combination was, of the the brains, the homework, and the seriousness. I was going to mention that. And for our listeners, Stuart Spencer is a very prominent Republican political consultant here in California. Let me introduce you to my co-host, Chuck Morris. Hello. Thank you, Patrick. Uh, hi, Sam. How are you? Very well. <clears throat> yeah, I'm enjoying listening to your um, insight and your inside information. Um, something that that comes to mind for me right right off the bat is that oftentimes the big front runner, the main candidate, the guy with all the money, it falls flat on the backside pretty much early on. Um, I mean, I could give examples, and certainly the Democratic Party, you had John Connolly, remember him? The oh, million dollar John Connolly both parties. Yeah, did he? I mean, he had the million-dollar delegate. You know, it was, a, it was the most unprecedented amount of spending back then. A million dollars meant something, you know? Yeah, Connolly uh, John, was the one who only got, his only record only got beat by Giuliani. There you go. Giuliani, you had John Glenn, you had Gary Hart, Ed Muskie. You know, these people were all these sort of the heir apparents, the the, um, exactly. the people that would be taking it, and they had the money, they had the machine, and yet they fell flat, and usually someone, kind of a dark horse, would come in and, and become the nominee. And it kind of goes to this idea that, that um, it, it brings up the question of how much influence money has. I mean, I, I generally think that it, it has to do with, as you said, Reagan had the quality of connecting with people. He could communicate clearly. He had a very, very well-defined set of principles and a, and a belief system. And he knew, and people were attracted to that. You know, you knew who he was. Uh, I yes. think that the candidate that can do that is the one that usually does well. 
Yes, and you know, but but it's not just enough to connect. Because if you want to talk about connection, you'd have John Edwards and Rick Perry. But what 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 Reagan had that Conley didn't. When Ronald Reagan talked about positions, he was fighting for you. When John Connolly talked about positions, he was fighting to be number one. And I, I was really taken. <clears throat> one of the Nixon speechwriters said, "You know, John Connolly is better with power than anybody in Washington, but who'd trust him with it?" You know, the other quality is that I think that Reagan had, and that it, it was the same with Eisenhower, really is that people underestimated his intelligence. They thought, oh, he's like an amiable, I remember the term yeah. that Gary Trudeau, amiable dunce. And, um, and, and Eisenhower, li- no, not at all. And Eisenhower literally cultivated that image in public, but we now know from recently released information that he was very hands-on and he was very much involved in every single aspect of his of his policy. And it was kind of this, it's almost like a, a posture that helped him do well. You know, well, that you people would... That. You yeah. need that. You need that so much. Eisenhower, in fact, said, when I write something, I know it has to sound good in the small towns, but it also has to make sense on the Champs-Élysées and in, and, at, and at you know 10 Downing Street. He understood he had two audiences at once. you know, And that's a thing that either some of the people who are full of themselves don't get, like Conley, or some of the panderers, like Rick Perry who made promises in Texas that would scare the pants off anybody in New York or California on the right. You know, you have right. to I mean, know how far you too local. Pardon? And, and I think that uh, in the case of, uh, of Reagan, I, I, I mean, this is an anecdote. I don't know if this is true, but in, the, in 1965, around that time, he was invited to debate Robert Kennedy, who was he a senator, him. of course, from New York, and he wiped the floor him. with him because nobody expected Reagan to, you know, they thought, oh, here's an easy, soft opportunity. And, and it resulted in Reagan really emerging as a political force. Yes, I was, you know, you can look in the old Newsweeks. Yeah. I was stunned with uh, Reagan understood when he was at Oxford and debating in front of a student audience that his real audience was the American audience. And Bobby was so worried about hurting the feelings of the violently anti-American European students that they'd say truly absurd things about Vietnam instead of just negative things about it. And Bobby didn't know what to do. And Reagan would say things like, I don't think the facts are there to support that. And they would go on, you know, in this polite way. And he also, by the way, studied the federal budget before he got there. And George Shultz, Nixon's Secretary of the Treasury, said Reagan, by the time he got to Washington, knew more about the budget than Nixon did. Right. You know, I want to ask you a question about Gore and, uh, you know, the Gore book. I know it's a painful topic. Um, but um, I think that, that, first of all, I love the comment made by Pat Buchanan. He said if it wasn't for little old Jewish ladies, Gore would have won the election. And that being in, um, in, you know, in Broward County voting on those damn butterfly ballots. Yeah, you know, but it wasn't voted. for the Jewish lady who thought the ballot would be easier to read if she invented her own ballot. <laughs> no, they all voted for Pat Buchanan. I mean, and, I know. And they, so, I mean, I just thought that was a funny observation of Buchanan. It is a very part. funny. It's a, it's a, you know, the fact, it bothers me now, in a nonpartisan way now, mm-hmm. that everybody designs their own ballots in ways that there are so many sloppinesses like that in our system where if only we had some 
set of standards that we could impose for clarity, you know, registration, moving. Let's not play so many games at the end, for good or for bad, with the ballot. I think it's since then they've gotten rid of those butterfly ballots. They were very misleading. And Gore also, was, is it true, because you mentioned that Gore did not coordinate as a team well with the Clinton people or with Bill Clinton. Um, after not, he after, decided that Bill Clinton was his problem, when he decided that, he, look, yeah, everybody and, but his family thought he was behind because all vice presidents look like lapdogs and and nobody and cheerleaders until they get out there and show that they're their own person again. And Gore, Gore is frustrated and he's thinking the only reason I'm behind Bill Bradley, the only reason I'm behind Bush, is Monica. So on the day he announces. He, he separates from the president and talks over and over about how disappointed he was. And that and, becomes and, the whole story. And, and that hurt him. Because I think, then. was it true that after the election, he met with Clinton in the White House and they had a screaming fight? And I don't Clinton know if they said, screamed, you know, because I don't think guys like that scream, but it was not pleasant. I it am was sure. not a happy meeting. And Clinton said, well, you should have called me. You should have had me go out there for you. See, I don't know that that's the case either, because no. I think I think the fact is Gore mishandled the Clinton record badly. I don't know that Clinton on the campaign trail was the answer, and I don't think we'll ever know because the campaign was so screwed up. I don't think the evidence is there to decide. And, you know, it's amazing, and, and I think this is one of the reasons why we now have Mitt Romney very, very reticent and careful about every single word he says, mainly because he remembers that his father in 1968 right. made a, a silly comment to a, a reporter offhand, like a local reporter, that, that was blown up, and it destroyed his political career the, when he said, you know, I, I've been yeah. brainwashed with the Vietnam War. I think and there's so another I, part of it, Chuck. And yes. I, I mean, he's he's not in as good shape as he would like to be. But he, at the beginning of this year, you know, there's always a candidate with a chance to win if they get the nomination. And there are candidates whose only chance to get the nomination is gamble to the right or the left, whether it's Michelle Bachman or Howard Dean. And the ones who could get to 50 plausibly don't want to go too far to the right or the left on the way. But whereas Obama's challenge was from the center and Reagan's challenge was from the center and George W. Bush's challenge was from the center, I realize now Mitt Romney's challengers were all on the right from from parts of the party that are at war with each other for the soul. You know, mm-hmm. Rick Perry, Michelle Bachman, Ron Paul, and he was extraordinarily careful for months. And then I think there was a little time of some panic or nervousness. He certainly never wanted to get into the contraception war. Then he avoided it. Pardon? Uh, you know, I mean, the, some of the other candidates stepped in it, but he's uh no, he's they didn't step careful. in it. They grabbed it. They yeah. grabbed it as the only way to get Mitt down. Well, they also were uh, were very inexperienced in that sense. I mean, it was really appalling to see. How do you think um, Barack Obama looks this time around? He's oh, two weeks ago. I would have said weak. Two weeks ago, I would have said 
disheveled and disorganized. I'm not saying he's going to win. I'm not saying Romney's going to win. But I'm saying now he looks like he's got a legitimate, sound campaign as an incumbent, taking advantage of the incumbent's weapons, which are very, very different from the weapons at the disposal of the challenger, which Romney is starting to deploy. Well, I mean, the incumbent obviously has an advantage. Even even a weak incumbent has an advantage. They've got the power of the office. They can do things. They can declare things, and he's been using it, I think, pretty pretty well. Yeah, the last even. two weeks, I think, with immigration, you know, right. the ideal thing are moves that the other party has never wanted to bring to a vote because they're divided, like immigration. Sure. You know, everybody who's a serious long-term Republican strategist knows you've got a lot of conservative Arab Americans and Hispanic Americans who would vote for you if it wasn't for that ethnocentric, you know, immigration business. And so they don't want to have these Arizona laws. They want to win the elections with conservative Hispanics, like when Reagan got 40% of the Hispanic vote. Sure. I'm sure uh, real quickly tell our listeners you're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick on the Blog Talk Radio Network, the Cyber Station USA Network, and our radio affiliates. We're talking with Sam Popkin. We're talking about his new book, The Candidate, What It Takes to Win and Hold the White House. Continue on, gentlemen. But you know, Okay, so you've got the people who know what the long run is, but you've got the others who've got constituencies where they're promising Never are we going to open. Are we going to put down a fence? Never are we going to recognize those unworthy, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I mean, you know, both parties have these issues. It used to be the Democrats who had the big ones, and it makes it really hard. And it gives the president these openings. You do something. It's not unconstitutional. If you want to reverse it, all you need is an act of Congress. You know, vote. But the parties are divided, and a lot of congressmen in, in the Republican Party don't want to go on record as anti-immigration. Right. No, it was a brilliant move on his part. I mean, I, yeah. I, I think that the only way Romney is going to overcome it is if he picks Rubio as his vice presidential nominee. I don't think Rubio will do it. And I, and I, I, I just saw the Rubio interview. He sure sounds interview. like he will. Let me, let me defend Rubio, first of all. I was impressed when I saw him on television the other day. And I'm not – it's sad to say this about religious presidents in America. When I read that Marco Rubio had for a while been a Mormon, I oh. said, oh, dear, not this year. <laughs> I get it, yeah. I mean, Marco Rubio already I'm sorry. has to deal I'm with. I'm not no, saying right. that with a gleam in my eye, you know. No, I'm, no, no. It's a sad I wish it were, phenomenon. I wish it didn't matter. That, uh, you know, Romney has to deal with all this bigotry from Mormons, and I think for that reason he's going to have to pick a uh, somewhat of an evangelical Protestant as a running what's wrong, mate. what's wrong with the north a midwestern catholic i think the evangelical protestants frankly is however they feel about mormons i think they're much more negative about the president i honestly when you looked even in march and april romney already had you know an almost unified republican party willing to vote for him against obama i would be surprised if he didn't take you know, think about Ohio when he picked, or or the right. Midwest. You know, That's I don't true. think he's going to win the coasts. I think he, I think the battle, and I don't think Obama's going to think that he has a chance anywhere in the South except Florida. 
And I honestly don't think Rubio helps with Hispanics at all, really, mm-hmm. unless they repudiate their own policies. And I don't know how Mitt can do that after 2008. Right. No, I would think he should pick someone from the Midwest. I think that polls, a recent poll indicates that he's pulled ahead in Ohio. And he's well, going to need that, that whole department. If he can pick up Ohio and somehow carry Florida anyway, he's he, he can win. Yes, that's right. He, I mean, Texas is off the map. He's going to win Texas no matter what happens on this planet. And, and New York and California are off the map. If he can win Florida... Ohio is going to be a huge pivot. Do you think that, uh, I mean, there are all of these moments in presidential campaigns where the candidate says something incredibly stupid or does something that has an, a horrendous image to it. Do you think that that really can sink a candidacy? I'm thinking of the two examples of um, of Gerald Ford saying that Poland is not a communist country during one of the debates and Michael Dukakis in that tank I don't think the tank one changed anything, but we remember it as the perfect proof of the dorkiness. You know, we all saw the tank, so there may be a million things that made us decide that all million of us think he's a dork. But when uh, you say, that, what, remember the tank, we all remember the tank. I'm, I'm going to, uh, we're, we're going to be dorky if we don't give our stations about 30 seconds to identify themselves, so we're going to take a 30-second break, and we'll be right back. Chuck and Patrick on the Blog Talk Radio Network, the Cyber Station USA Network, and on our radio affiliates. And, of course, this segment is brought to you by Barton Publishing, bartonpublishing.com. And we were speaking of polls a minute ago, and I just uh, just checked, and Obama is ahead of Romney in Pennsylvania, Ohio, and Florida. Um, what up poll is that, Patrick? Uh, this is published in uh, the San Francisco Chronicle, and the poll is the Bloomberg poll. He's leading Romney by nine percentage points in Ohio. Um, Sam, I, I wanted to add to Well, there's another poll that says the other thing. That's all, Patrick. Okay. I mean, yeah, they're going back and forth. That's yeah, clear. exactly. Okay. And there's another poll that's just come out having him leading in, in Ohio. Anyway, well, that being uh, Romney. In, in any case, so we uh, could have, I, I wanted to ask Sam, um, now that you, you've been through this history of presidential campaigns and, and you've, you've looked at what, what wins and what, what doesn't win, which of the two campaigns do you think is best organized for winning, or are either of them well organized for winning? They're both adequately organized for winning, and they both have big landmines ahead. And the, I mean, and what's unusual about the day we're speaking is this is one of the first times in history that we know what the shock is going to be, and it's going to come in the next 24 hours. Wall Street and the world have no clue what song the Supremes are going to put out. And that, whatever the Supremes do, I can assure you that the instant reaction will turn out to be wrong on both sides. Well, I don't know what the instant reaction will be. 
I don't know what the Supremes are going to do, but this is the kind of bombshell like a 911 or a Pearl Harbor that you normally have, but you don't know it's going to happen. But you know and, that both campaigns have probably already taped uh, or at least written their responses to any of the possible decisions, and they've they've thought it through, I'm sure. Yes, and like to give an example of one that I don't think anybody thought would turn out well, I mean, you have to be ready for better or worse, and that's where the team really matters is Obama had no choice. President Obama, before the North Carolina Convention, had to say something about gay marriage. doesn't matter when he said it, but he couldn't have a protest at the convention. Nobody, I think, on either side realized how many people would say, fine, let's not talk about it anymore. I think a lot of people in both parties were nervous and worried and, oh, it's going to blow up on us. And it's just sort of like, okay, fine, let's move on. Actually, Mm. we moved on to Gay Pride Day at the Pentagon, which surprised everybody there. Uh, Secondly, after you've looked through this history and you've looked at the way the two campaigns are organized, uh, liberals are complaining that that, uh, thanks to Citizens United there's going to be a tsunami of money from the 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 right and it's all going to be coming through uh, non-profits and and, uh, super PACs, etc. Do you think that's really going to make a difference? Well, let's put it this way. You know, there's that old proverb be careful what you wish for you might get it (laughs) i think that the citizens united decision is going to turn out to be as bad for the party that gets the most money as for the party that gets the least and i don't say that because i don't want good things to happen out of bad decisions but because look at already what's happened this year citizens united bankrolled newt gingrich to attack romney Rick Perry to move the party over. Michelle Bachman got money to do things. Foster Freeze gave millions to Rick Santorum. I don't think this disunity and the attacks that have already been made on Governor Romney are, are a big help. And all this money, these people have their own agendas and their own messages. And I don't know that it helps Mitt Romney when the Ricketts family puts money into somebody who decides to make a name by bringing up Jeremiah Wright and raising all the racial issues that do as much to mobilize African Americans as to remind people who already dislike the president that he's African American. So there could be uh, uh, unintended consequences there. I think there's a lot of blowback, and I think the critical thing is with money – People always know that money has motives. And if the money people don't explain what they're up to and why, it gets written off. I went back to do the research before the show because I knew we would be talking about Citizens United in the context of my book. Franklin D. Roosevelt never got a majority of newspaper editorials, and newspaper editorials were the super PACs of the day. Before big radio, before big TV, before super PACs, you had the radio edit, the newspaper editorial page. In 1936, Roosevelt got no more than a third of the endorsements. And we all know what happened there. Yeah. Right. You know, Sam, since you looked into this issue, and I don't know the answer, I mean, has Citizens United really made any difference at all? I mean, the other day Patrick brought up a statistic which showed corporate giving – 
going increasing 10 years ago. I mean, and, and Citizens United was just last year. So, I mean, does that – has there been any change? I mean, the multimillionaires that are giving money, they're not corporations. They're just people, and well, they I are giving the money out of their own bank it, accounts. It, okay. I don't think presidential elections would be better if they were cheaper. But mm-hmm. what bothers me is the lack of coordination of agendas where everybody can knock off five or ten congressmen here or three or four senators there – and you can you can it's going to look like one of these countries where you can block everything and settle on nothing. I thought the best line of the year was former Governor of Florida Jeb Bush when he went after the pledges by saying, "I'm against raising taxes, but I don't outsource my principles to other people." And that right. was, a, of course, an attack on Grover Norquist and the money that goes into people who vote for anything that Grover Norquist gang calls an increase. I thought that took a lot of guts and that that was a very positive sign for the future of the Republican Party. Did he sign? I mean, I don't know if Jeb Bush signed the pledge, but I can... No, he refused. Yeah, and also, I mean, I I can just speaking myself as a former congressional candidate, I got pledge cards from groups both on the left and the right. You know, that's nothing new. I mean, that's... um, You know, I got a pledge card from NARAL. I mean, they wanted me to pledge support to different things. So... I think that those things generally are, are good because they force candidates to take positions and to say, I, I sign my name to something saying I'll stand for this. But I, and, I disagree uh, because yep. times change. And on the, the I mean, but the, let's, I agree that you want to say, I pledge to be careful, I pledge to listen, I pledge to support the rights of this group. But to be so specific that a lawyer can call you up and say, I'm running, I'm, I'm putting a million dollars into your opponent because you broke the pledge, that gets destructive on both parties. Oh, I think that, I I mean, I disagree with that. I want to see candidates take stands and sign things. And that doesn't mean they have to do it. You know, they can break the pledge if if conditions change. But, you know, when when you elect somebody, I like the idea of of being able to say they stood for this, that, and the other thing, and then they violated it. I mean, the most famous violator of the Grover Norquist pledge was George Bush Sr., well, you don't know, forget he, Ronald Reagan raised taxes too a lot. Sure, but in California and Washington, but, but he no, did no, it in a way that he didn't. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't. I, I'm. I, we're just going to have to disagree on this one. Right. I like if you want to if you want to believe in the people who run the legislature, the party caucus has some standards. Then pledge to support the party or not, or pledge to fight for the party's position. But you can't have a dozen different people with a lot of money that you're going off to and you're making all the contradictory play. It gets, I think that's the problem right now in both parties. And mm-hmm. the, the Democrats may only look saner because the craziness of the groups making demands was in the 70s and 80s. Yeah, now it's the Republicans' turn to have all these demands that are not fitting together. Right. That may be. I appreciate that. Um, um, along those lines, I wanted to ask you, uh, we're, we're looking at uh, billion-dollar presidential campaigns, assuming both sides can raise that much money. Does it really take a billion dollars to run for president in this country? No, but it takes about as much money as the other person has to balance your ads. It's like the arms race. If we and the Russians had each had a quarter as many warheads, we'd have been in the same position but how can one side stop if the other side doesn't stop? Yeah. 
a billion dollars, just in addition to saying that that I think it's something of a waste of of, of money, um, in in one way, and of course being in the media, I think it's a great use of money. But a billion dollars means that you have to be very sophisticated in your management process and in your accounting processes, and you're going to spend this billion dollars over about a year. And I know from watching film uh, producers who spend $150, $200 million in, in a year that it's really difficult to keep track of all that money and all of those people. And I just wonder from the inside. Why is it ever? And is there gouging that goes on? Yeah. Are there people who are making a fortune? Oh, and I'd love to know when somebody gives $400 million to a super PAC on either side what the salaries are and how much of that looks like some of these charities that got exposed where, you know, $200 million went to the family or the, the chauffeurs or the cars. Yeah, the cottage industry. Yeah. It bothers and, and, but me. I, I, I don't think it's going to be that big a, a, an expense in this campaign because Obama isn't getting the money. They're not writing checks to him. Well, we'll, well, well let's wait and see what happens at yet. the convention. Yeah. Let's yeah. wait. You can't tell yet what's happening. You've got these rhythms to it. Let's see what happens when all the I was not in town this weekend. I was at a wedding when the Koch brothers had their big meetings near San Diego. Let's see what happens when they start launching their 400 million. And also, remember the way Obama won in Iowa over Hillary Clinton was not on the air. It was the ground game. And, at that, and this and is that the year we're going to see uh, whether get out the vote matters more or less then monopolize the airwaves. And this How is something I see in my look. book over and over. Gentlemen, we are out of time. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Sam. Uh, Thank you, Sam. Well, it was a pleasure. I look forward to doing this again. Great. Sam Popkin, the book is, a, is The Candidate, How to Win and Hold the White House. It's available on Amazon.com and find bookstores everywhere. And that's it for Fairness Radio today. You've been listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick from the Blog Talk Radio Network, the Cyber Station USA Network, and our affiliates. And don't forget to visit us on our website, fairnessradio.com. Sign up for our Twitter feed and like us on Facebook. Good night, everybody. Good night, everybody. Stay tuned for Mike Siegel. Thank you. Thank you. And then in our second hour, Albert Navarra, our constitutional expert, is going to talk to us about the decision that we're going to hear about tomorrow on the Affordable Care Act, what it is constitutionally, and what it means. So be sure you tune in tomorrow. We're going to hear both from a doctor who's going to be affected by the act, and a constitutional expert is going to tell us how they arrived at that. 